Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to today's episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom, and I'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Bristol Myers Squibb, for their support of Myeloma Crowd Radio and today's program. Now, before we get started on today's very interesting show, I have just a short announcement about recent updates inside of HealthTree. Uh, we now have over 7,800 people um, who are using HealthTree. And we've built a set of Myeloma Crowd community forums that you can find inside the platform. They're organized by topic. Uh, we have new notifications now. So when someone comments on your post, you'll be notified inside of HealthTree, and you can chat back and forth with that individual. And we're looking for better ways to extend your connections with one another. In the forums, we want you to be able to go back and find specific answers by topic instead of trying to scroll through kind of sometimes what is an endless social media feed to find what you're looking for. In the twin machine, we've also expanded those notifications. So if you are trying to find somebody with similar genetics to you and your myeloma, you'll be able to issue a friend request, basically, and then be able to chat back and forth and see those friend requests and accept them and see other people's acceptance of yours and those notifications. We also have a new feature in the works in HealthTree that I'm going to... Um, not share completely, so I'll keep you in suspense. But go in and enter your prior treatments and your side effects to get ready to use this new feature. And um, I know you're going to love it. We have a team. We, we also have a team ready at all times to help you enter information if you need help doing that. We give you electronic ways to do that yourself, or we can do that for you if you prefer. So now on to today's exciting program. Uh, myeloma patients have heard a lot about maintenance therapy in the last decade, I would say, which is a really a good way to extend remissions. And the majority of maintenance therapy today are immunomodulators and now some proteasome inhibitors or other drug classes like monoclonal antibodies are being considered and used in the myeloma clinic. So once the tumor burden's dropped after treatment, what else can we do to keep myeloma from coming back? So on today's show, um, Dr. Syed Abbas Ali from Johns Hopkins Medicine will share a vaccine in development to try to sustain remissions following stem cell transplant. So Dr. Ali, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Jenny, uh, and thank you to the Myeloma Crowd and um, our audience for having me. Thank you. Yeah, I'm super excited for our show today. Um, before we get started, let me introduce you just a little bit. Um, Dr. Ellie is a myeloma specialist and assistant professor of oncology at the Sydney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Dr. Lee earned his MBBS degree at Aga Khan University. He completed his residency at UAMS in Arkansas and performed a fellowship in oncology at the National Institute of Health. He spent the last several years working on the vaccine for our discussion today, and I've had several opportunities to share those results at major meetings like ASH and uh, the International Myeloma um, Workshop 
meetings. Uh, his research extends to other immunotherapies like monoclonal antibodies, and he's performed significant research on CAR T-cell myeloma clinical trials. So a wide range of immunotherapy type um, of clinical trials and background. So, um, Dr. Ali, we're so excited to have you with us today. Thank you. Um, maybe we want to just start very broadly talking about how are vaccines used in myeloma care. Um, I know there are some, you know, disease prevention vaccines like we're thinking about with COVID and things like that. And um, this isn't necessarily to treat the myeloma itself, but to do something else. So maybe just a broad background of how vaccines are used in cancer care and myeloma care in general. Well, no, thank you very much uh, for the excellent question. So, um, you know, to, to give it a broad background, um, we're all, I think, aware now that the myeloma landscape has really changed in the last 20 years, right? And this is yeah. because of primarily the advent of proteasome inhibitors and then IMIDs and DARA and other immunotherapies. And so things have really changed. Um, what's also, as you were mentioning earlier, to really change the paradigm is uh, people are getting transplant. And even with or without transplant, people are going on long-term suppressive maintenance therapy with Revlimid. And what's sort of become apparent with all of this is that maybe what's going on to improve our outcomes is that um, we're getting deeper responses. And now into all of this mix, uh, there are data that show that minimal residual disease testing, MRD testing, which is which are data that are still maturing. Uh, whether mm -hmm. you do MRD testing by flow or NGS, models suggest that getting into an MRD negative state is a good place to be. And um, you know those the, the it improves the progression-free and survival outcomes. So the question still remains: How do you approach patients that might be MRD positive, especially where they're um, either low degree of MRD or high degree of MRD. Because the the basic paradigm for myeloma still remains is that the primary concern for most patients over a long enough timeline is that people will relapse. Into this entire context, we have the whole world of cancer vaccines, right? So cancer vaccines have been, in real terms, have been around for a long time, since the late 1800s, when people tried giving um, bits and pieces of bacteria like streptococcus to patients with sarcomas and saw a response. The basis of um, vaccines or cancer vaccines is pretty much the same across the board, which is to amplify the tumor-specific immune response, right? You want to recruit T cells or other immune cells to target your cancer. Um, and so these have been tested in various malignancies, starting with the um, solid tumors, especially solid tumors like melanoma, which are immunogenic cancers. And what, you know what? We saw responses. But it isn't quite the slam dunk that we thought it would be, whether it's for solid tumors or for myeloma, at least not yet. And there are many reasons why that could uh, that could be. There are FDA-approved vaccines, let's say, for prostate cancer, um, but not too many for uh, any other malignancy. When you look at cancers in general or the myeloma space, when you're trying to reduce uh, or rather produce an immune response, then um, you need to try and target something. So maybe your vaccines are um, used to target a specific set of antigens. These are often tumor-associated antigens, how you use those, how you modulate those, affects how your vaccines work. Um, having an immunoadjuvant, um, a drug that sort of helps uh, poke the bear, poke the immune system to wake up, this is cancer, this is myeloma, that's very useful. How you use that, what you use, makes a difference to how your cancer vaccine works. Uh, having other drugs to sort of help 
jack up the immune system, for lack of a better word, drugs like Revlimid, for instance, or checkpoint inhibitors, this also ma uh, makes a difference to how your cancer vaccine or myeloma vaccine might work. And really, the other thing that's important about context is where are you designing your myeloma vaccine for? Is this something, or your cancer vaccine for, is this something that you're going to try and use to um, reduce the amount of tumor burden, starting with a large tumor burden? And studies have shown for various cancers that you can make a vaccine and you will get it to kill uh, cancer cells. But there are two aspects to this, right? Reducing tumor burden, especially when there's a large amount of tumor burden, is not as easy. It's easier said than done. And mm -hmm which show that maybe, especially in the heme malignancy space and the myeloma space, data that we have that I'll be talking about as we talk a little bit more about GVAX, and others have shown that, you know, perhaps the best setting for these vaccines, especially in diseases like myeloma, is to try and keep things suppressed, perhaps to prevent a relapse, perhaps to prevent a transition of disease, let's say from MGUS to smoldering or smoldering to active multiple myeloma, or perhaps to maintain an immunosurveillance type situation where for myeloma, with myeloma, for instance, you're not eradicating the disease entirely, but because you've improved your immunosurveillance by training the immune system to recognize the myeloma via the vaccine, you are keeping a lid on the myeloma and things keeping things from getting any worse. Yeah, I think that's um, so. That's so interesting because you're not necessarily saying, okay, we're going to use a vaccine to treat the actual myeloma. You can use other drugs to do that, and there are a lot of those, even stem cell transplant and older chemotherapies like that. But um, yeah, I think that's great yeah, to, to think about how I, to use that in, in such a different way. Absolutely, I think one an aspect of vaccines that needs to be borne in mind is that maybe. And, you know, these are things that are still in development that maybe one of the best uses is to keep a prolonged suppressive state uh, and uh, with, uh, with a series of shots that you have to take it, maybe longer intermittent uh, intervals, and that this will spare you from getting the big whopping chemotherapy, but at the same time makes it so that the immune system keeps a check on things. And uh, mm -hmm. the right context for it, the right combination partners for it, whether you use Revlimid, checkpoint inhibitors, the right construct, all of these things are the things that are under development in various trials and with our own trial. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, do you want to talk first about the difference between aloe versus auto vaccines um, in in myeloma or other places? Cause, and then we'll talk about the other types of vaccines before we jump into the GVAX vaccine. Absolutely. So, um, so it's a, another excellent question. So, um, you know, um, the dendritic cells, which you guys may have read about, these are ant professional mm -hmm. anti-planting cells. And these were uh, uh, identified and described back in the 70s. And then people have been trying to harness dendritic cells and leverage the immune system in general to produce a response against uh, the cancer. And there are combined vaccines, whether for solid tumor or for uh, myeloma, where you use uh, a cell-based vaccine. Um, and you can do something like, say, take a dendritic cell vaccine and take a dendritic cell from a person and combine it with a tumor cell from that person, a dead tumor cell from that person, and use this as a means to um, give this back to the patient after culturing uh, with uh, different immune adjuvants and use this as a means to train the immune system. So the dendritic cells take the bits and pieces of the tumor cell and go to the immune system. Hey, by the way, look, look here. This is myeloma and we need to learn how to, uh, learn how to kill this. You, the advantage, amongst others, perhaps, of using autologous sources of this is that 
this is as personal as it gets, right? When you say personalized yeah. medicine, using your own cells uh, to mount an immune response, then these are the cells that your immune system sees every day. It recognizes these or it sees these or it's been exposed to these. And that perhaps is certainly one advantage of saying that, look, let's use autologous cells. These are antigens that our immune system is trained or at least has been exposed to and might recognize. So that's one advantage of using autologous cells. Uh, these are self-antigens. Um, this you can compare with allogeneic. But before you do that, the thing to bear in mind is that the immune system, uh, myeloma and cancer in general, is very suppressive of the immune system, right? So myeloma recruits mm -hmm. uh, various uh, immune cells like myeloid-derived suppressor cells. These, these have suppressor in their name, and what they do is, in turn, they go and suppress the parts, the bits and pieces of the immune system, the business end, and keep those from attacking the myeloma. That's what myeloma does. It, it also does things like upregulating uh, checkpoint inhibitor molecules, or checkpoint molecules, rather, and the PD-1, PD-L1 axis, and these, in turn, shut off the immune system, and the immune system is exposed to the myeloma, and the immune system tries to kill the myeloma. So for patients with cancer or with myeloma, the immune system might become tolerized to, uh, to the presence of the cancer. And that is a thought that you have to have in mind that when you throw the same, the, the same antigens at the same immune system, perhaps it's already tolerant of those and you may not get the sort of response that you want. Now, when you take mm -hmm. allergenic sources of uh, vaccines for myeloma, what you're essentially doing is saying that, look, I'm going to take cells from somewhere else. And that sort of makes it easy because there are myeloma cell lines that are out there that have been derived years ago from patients that had very aggressive myelomas. And these are myeloma cell lines that have uh, various myeloma antigens in them. The cells are fairly deranged and used to be fairly aggressive. And so they have a large repertoire of antigens that an immune system can look at and recognize. When you kill these allogeneic cells and then give them what's the remnants and the bits and pieces of these myeloma cell lines to patients, then maybe what you're doing is you're saying that, hey, look, this is what myeloma looks like, but these, because they're allogeneic and not autologous, are different enough that perhaps the immune system is not as tolerized to them. And when you give this in a well-designed construct uh, with, let's say, GMCSF or let's say with Revlimid or let's say with checkpoint inhibitors or some other construct, then maybe what you're doing is essentially... Uh, giving the immune system an opportunity to recognize cells that are myeloma, but different enough that it might actually do something about it. Mm. Okay, that makes a lot of sense between the auto and allo. And I can see advantages for both, you know, and that's really interesting. But this, the, the allo is kind of like an off-the-shelf. You could have it prepared and doesn't need to be, need to be personalized and some maybe a little more available too in certain situations, kind of like CAR-T. Absolutely. It's allo cell lines are readily available, right? They're out there. And uh, so the process of taking auto, stem, auto cells, uh, manuf -manuf or manufacturing them, purifying them, or do doing whatever you need to do to process them, to reintroduce, uh, you, it makes it easier because you bypass that whole process and maybe, again, these cells are different enough. When you think mm -hmm. about allogeneic stem cell transplant for myeloma, and that's an extreme form of the same idea, right? Because what you're saying is, hey, this old immune system, it works for other things, but really just completely misses the myeloma. Why don't we change out the immune system entirely and give you a new immune system from a donor? And that is sort of an extreme form of this, which is you change out the whole immune system. So uh, giving the immune system new things to recognize is occasionally mm -hmm. a nice way for getting a response. Yeah, 
I could see the advantage of that. Um, you know, you talked about the dendritic vaccines as being this auto idea. Are there other vaccines um, that are in process in myeloma? And then yeah, we'll so, jump into the GVAX vaccine. No, absolutely. So it's um, it's interesting. There's a, there's a lot of work being done in the solid tumor space in particular, as well as in the myeloma space in vaccines. Um, you know, we, we both mentioned the dendritic cell vaccines, and these are uh, really very, um, very interesting. So... Uh, there's been a lot of work done um, by um, uh, David Avigan's group up in uh, um, in, uh, in Boston, and um, it's it's a very interesting concept where you take these dendritic cells, you fuse them. In dendritic cells, um, you know, evoke a broad anti-tumor response when you combine them with uh, tumor cells, which are your source of antigens, which are you know your target-rich environment, and then you culture these with GMCSF. And I keep mentioning GMCSF. I'm just going to talk about that very quickly. So GMCSF. Yeah, yeah. Explain that. Mm-hmm. GMCSF shows up in a lot of different um, uh, contexts in as an immunoadjuvant. So you know, w- when I mentioned about poking the bear to wake it up, GMCSF is a means of poking the bear and getting it to wake up and recognize the cancer. And what it does is, it's a um, it uh, has a sort of a stimulatory effect on. Uh, CD4-positive T-cells and CD8-positive T-cells, as well as dendritic cells. And so when you give people GMCSF either locally or more systemically, it kind of primes the immune system to be able to respond to something. And when you cook, um, or culture rather, uh, cells like dendritic cells plus tumor cells with GMCSF, uh, then that whole environment is primed for the immune system to get up and recognize targets and to mount a, a subsequent immune response. Now, um, and th- this is how it comes to be used in a bunch of different uh, vaccine trials, as well as other uh, trials for uh, myeloma and other malignancies. Um, David Avigan's group, uh, you know, they published some really uh, interesting and provocative data uh, where they had initial responses with the co- with this construct in uh, myeloma patients, and then they combined this with a uh, auto transplant uh, in addition with uh, Revlimid. Uh, with or without vaccine, and I think this is a BMT-CTN trial. Um, I think it enrolled about 200-plus uh, patients. Uh, and they saw some very tumor-specific T-cell responses and deepening of responses that you wouldn't otherwise ex- expect after transplant. So one place that the dendritic cell vaccines are being used is a, the next natural step for this is to see, hey, why don't we try and find a, a different combination partner? Let's see if we can combine this with checkpoint inhibitors. And mm-hmm. um, what... Uh, if that gives us a, a, a better response or a deeper response, because checkpoint inhibitors essentially take the brakes off the immune system. And these trial data or these links for the trials are available on uh, clinicaltrials.gov. Other interesting trials uh, that have been uh, performed, uh, really very interesting. Um, there was a trial of um, a construct, a, a multi-peptide con- construct called PVX410 that was used especially in the smoldering myeloma setting. Now, this is mm-hmm. a very nice, elegant concept, right, to try and uh, nip, nip it all in the bud, get it under control, and train the immune system to realize that, look, uh, you can't let this get out of hand. Because there are data that show we're still trying to figure out why people turn from MGUS to smoldering. There's aspects of clonal heterogeneity and so on and so forth, and why people go from smoldering to active myeloma. And we're trying to find out where these transitions actually happen. And one of the things that is involved is that aspects of immune surveillance change and the immune system becomes more tolerized or Mm -hmm. these plasma cells evade the immune system. So maybe if you get in there and leverage the immune system before that actually happens, 
you have a better shot at keeping the myeloma under control for extended periods. So uh, Ajay Nuka and colleagues, um, you know, published a very nice study. I think uh, the paper came out, or abstract at least, came out perhaps in 2018. And um, what they did was uh, they took um, these uh, multiple myeloma antigens, um, CD138, which many people may have heard of, and uh, something called Xbox Protein 1 and um, uh, SLAM F7, I believe, and turned this into a... Uh, Poly, uh, multi-peptide vaccine. And so peptides are bits and pieces of uh, molecules and proteins. And uh, when there are enough of them or in a particular conformation, these can excite the immune system into going, whoops, I think something is there. So the rationale was that if you take these vaccines or these uh, peptides, uh, which are HLA2 restricted, and uh, combine them with uh, perhaps with Revlimid, uh, and give them to myeloma patients or smoldering myeloma patients at moderate or high risk of transformation, then perhaps you will see uh, a myeloma-specific immune response. Uh, and, you know, lo and behold, they saw that, uh, yeah, you did have myeloma-specific T-cells uh, and enhanced T-cell response, uh, especially in combination with Revlimid, and that um, uh, these... Uh, when uh, when you give people this vaccine, then you the T cells ended up producing interferon gamma, which, as we know, is this potent cytokine that activates the whole immune system. And then there are other aspects of uh, looking into, um, you know, what other vaccines uh, uh, strategies can be used. People have tried doing very interesting things, like giving anti-idiotype vaccines, right? So what they do is mm -hmm. they put you genetic stem cell transplant, but what they actually do is take bits and pieces of the myeloma proteins flying around in a myeloma patient's blood, and then they make a vaccine out of that, give these to the donor of those allogeneic stem cells, and then give you the allogeneic stem cell transplant with the thought process wow. that the immunity will piggyback with that. Uh, so that's mm -hmm. a very interesting concept that uh, I'm certain is going to be uh, is, uh, developed further. Dendritic cell vaccines being used in an earlier setting, maybe even MGUS rather than a smoldering myeloma, there is at least one trial out there, uh, although I'm not sure if it's uh, necessarily recruiting. And then, you know, there are even more um, sort of uh, ways to think about this. If what we're trying to do is wake up T cells and grow T cells, maybe combination strategies. Uh, I um, have done a lot of work in uh, uh, CAR T cells for uh, targeting BCMA for multiple myeloma. Even strategies mm -hmm. where you perhaps try and combine vaccines with anti-BCMA CAR T-cells because, you know, those are T-cells. And when yeah. T-cells wake up, they tend to wake up other T-cells as well. So doing all of this, uh, th these combination therapies at the same time, may be another avenue to explore that these anti-BCMA CAR T-cells might help you uh, kill off the bulk of a tumor. And then you have the vaccine that's back there that is now all uh, woken up and activated uh, by the immune system. Uh, to, you know, keep a lid on things uh, after the CAR T cells have done their work. So very interesting times and lots of avenues that are being explored in this setting. Yeah. Oh, it's just fascinating what's happening, and the work is just so astounding. I I mean, if we had to have a cancer, this is a good one to have with all the development that's being done. It's amazing. Um, well, do you want to give us a, an idea of just the history of this GVAX vaccine and then how it works? Yeah, so... GVAX is a is a very interesting construct. Uh, so um, GVAX is the G in GVAX is GMCSF. Uh, that's a aforementioned GMCSF. Okay. You know the places where it was really studied and has been extensively studied is uh, actually a lot of solid tumors, right? Breast cancer, uh, colorectal cancer, even pancreatic cancer in particular. A big study out of Hopkins, uh, as well as uh, uh, diseases like CML um, and uh, chronic myeloid leukemia. And so what you do is you say that look. Uh, I have 
you're going to, I'm going to take some tumor cells, or I'm going to take another cell. I'm going to genetically modify these to secrete GMCSF. So I don't need to give people injections of GMCSF or give GMCSF uh, externally. And uh, I'm going to put in some tumor cells in there. I'm going to uh, culture this all and put it in a syringe and make a vaccine out of it. And when I give these to my patients, I can take pretty much bits and pieces of whatever cancer I want, pancreatic cancer, breast mm -hmm. cancer, CML, and by giving this immunojuvant at the same time, um, I, I give this to my patients, and I see interesting responses. I see the T cells wake up. I see uh, cancer-specific immune responses, and maybe even some long-term uh, T cells that are in the system, uh, maybe even years later. The larger questions then become that, hey, how can I make this even better in certain settings? And that's where Revlimid in particular comes in in the myeloma setting. So the excellent work done by uh, Kim Noonan and Yvonne Borello uh, here at uh, Johns Hopkins showed that what you can do is when you use Revlimid, Revlimid has a very potent effect. It's called an immunomodulator for a reason. It has a very potent effect on the immune system. It, it uh, makes, activates NK cells. It uh, activates T cells. Um, it uh, reduces uh, regulatory uh, components of the immune system like regulatory T cells. So, uh, you know, in a roundabout fashion, reduces the breaks on the immune system, uh, aside from directly targeting uh, myeloma cells as well. And so it makes a, for a favor favorable uh, immune environment. So Kim and Kim Noonan and Yvonne Borello showed uh, in a very nice paper in 2012 that if you give Revlimid uh, to patients uh, with uh, myeloma and you give them a pneumonia vaccine, then the pneumonia vaccine immune response is actually better. And in hmm. fact, um, there are certain aspects of the myeloma-specific immune response that become a little bit better as well. So these were really interesting and striking data and underscored how Revlimid, you know, uh, is kind of like often the spoonful of sugar that makes all the other medicine go down. I like using that phrase because mm -hmm. it really improves the immune environment. So there was a follow-up study that uh, Ivan Borello conducted, which is the first GVAX trial. And um, um, this is a very um, um, uh, interesting study. What uh, Ivan did was take patients, a total of 15 patients who had uh, multiple myeloma. No one had a high-risk multiple myeloma. All the patients had low-risk multiple myeloma who were not in complete remission but had uh, a near-complete remission. And the definition for that at the time was uh, not having an, an M-spike but um, having uh, uh, being immunofixation positive. And so uh, the vaccine consisted of a, a cell line called K562, which makes a GMCSF, and myeloma cell lines called H929 and U266, uh, which were irradiated, so, um, so they died. And uh, you don't, you're not just irradiating them, so you don't give people live myeloma cells. You're irradiating them so that when uh, you kill the myeloma cells, they break up and all their bits and pieces go flying around so that they hit immune cells mm -hmm. and immune cells. Oh, what's this? So um, the goal of this was to see, look, you know, can we first, let's make sure that this is something that's safe to use, and can we use this to convert people into, say, a complete remission and eradicate what's left of the residual myeloma? Now, out of these 15 patients, uh, you know, only five had had transplant, but uh, patients that had had between one and four lines of treatment. So... Um, um, the uh, when when we uh, and everyone uh, had to have Revlimid and new, the pneumonia vaccine was given with this uh, at the same time. So interesting things. First things that they saw was that when you gave this vaccine construct to patients with myeloma, 
nothing really bad happened. There were no dose-limiting toxicities, no grade 3 toxicities. Uh, patients did uh, could have a grade 1 uh, toxicity where, you know, if they got an injection, they may have complained of burning and pruritus. This uh, was grade 1 at worst and resolved in uh, pretty much everybody. Uh, and uh, and then these were uh, administered, uh, these vaccines were administered uh, for a total of four doses along with Revlimid, and so uh, at month one, two, three, and then six. And what we saw was that uh, out of 15 patients, uh, and this paper has been submitted for publication on the updated results, out of 15 patients, um, there were eight that went into a true complete remission from having been in a near complete remission. And the median time to getting there was a little over 11 and a half months, so it's not something that happened uh, immediately, mm. but over time, what you saw was this deepening of the response. Uh, you know, and when you put this in percentage terms, it was a 53% uh, uh, conversion rate. And when you look at this years that's high. out... That's really high. And when you look at this years out that we are now, you see that only six of those 15 had any evidence of progression, which is, you know, divine... Uh, defined as having an M protein of more than 0.5 or more than 100 uh, uh, milligrams per liter uh, when you're looking at the light chains. But what's interesting is that there are some patients who had um, uh, have had evidence of a disease with variable amounts of M protein, uh, little just a little bit beyond the near complete remission that has shown up, but still shown no evidence of progression. So there's disease there. You can see it in the blood, but well beyond the median PFS that you would expect. Um, these people have um, uh, remained in remission uh, quite a bit from uh, from where you are. So from in uh, from uh, the diagnosis, this median the median follow up uh, at 6.9 years and 5.3 years from the trial. When you look at patients who are responding, the median PFS from enrollment could not really be estimated. Um, so that was really very striking to us. Other things that were really very striking is that um, you know when uh, Ivan. Uh, in the lab, and our group in the lab did uh, uh, minimal residual disease testing by next-gen sequencing on seven patients where we had the samples that were available. What we saw is that there was a difference between having lots of MRD, uh, maybe at one times 10 to the minus one. There was an arbitrary cutoff, but having MRD less than that versus that level or more uh, was a predictor for how how you would go to uh, towards uh, uh, progression. So if you had a lot of MRD, then yeah, as can be as is expected, maybe you get uh, a uh, more rapid progression. But if you have low levels of MRD, then if you get the vaccine, your median progression-free survival was somewhere around 84 months. Uh, so yeah. what we're saying is that in lower amounts of MRD, right? And, and so the arbitrary number that uh, was set in the lab was actually very high amounts of MRD. But for people with lower or moderate amounts of MRD, what you were seeing was that uh, there was a, a prolonged PFS um, in, in those lower levels. So um, uh, other interesting things that came out, when you look at the T-cell receptors to see if T-cells are expanding both in the blood and the bone marrow, you saw that, the, yes, they had expanded. When you looked at those T-cells to see if they were producing more interferon gamma, uh, they were definitely doing that, and they were all these uh, what we call polyfunctional T-cells. And when you looked at these T-cells to see if they had... Um, a myeloma-specific uh, um, uh, sort of uh, uh, phenotype, then that was very much the case. These T-cells uh, were myeloma-specific. They had um, uh, um, expanded both in the blood and in the bone marrow. And in a number of these patients, what you saw was that uh, three patients in particular where we had these long-term samples, we saw that there was persistent vaccine-specific immune cells 
up to seven years after uh, the um, uh, up to seven years after the presence of uh, any detectable disease. So what that to us meant was that look, we are reaching this uh, uh, what we consider to be a form of immune equilibrium. That hey, this detectable disease or um, M spike, you know, showed up a while ago. However. You know, these uh, long-term samples tell us there's, there's a persistent vaccine-specific immune response. And so we, our thought was that maybe what this was happening is that over all these years, these va the vaccine was maintaining an immune equilibrium, even though there was evidence of myeloma that was there. Uh, and there were other interesting things. You found T-cells in compartments uh, that, um, uh, tissue-resident T-cells, we call them, that again are associated with a, a longer-term control of underlying disease process. So, and... and Based on these data, is we moved on to the phase two trial, which is uh, what I'm leading and what I think uh, uh, at least part of this talk is about. Oh yes, for sure. And um, that, so the the phase one, when did that start? Because so, that was a while ago, right? That was a while ago. So the study actually came online uh, back in 2011, and patients accrued over the next several years, uh, or actually the next uh, couple of years. And so the study. Um, has uh, uh, not been a growing patient for a good long time now. Um, so um, these, the, um, uh, the um, correlatives were studied extensively in the lab, and uh, when the, these uh, progression-free survival just kept getting better, uh, we thought, well, let's move this on to uh, the larger uh, randomized control uh, phase two arm, which is where we are now. Yeah, and so you addressed safety, you thought about dosing. I think what you said, um, I just want to emphasize it, because if you're saying persistent responses after seven years and you only gave the doses after one, two, three, and six months in the phase one trial, I just think that's really remarkable to have that long of a persistent response. Uh, you're even, you know, you're you're looking at those T-cells and seeing how they're continuing to respond even seven years out with no booster shots, basically. Exactly. And so, um, um, which is, as you say, very striking. Um, yeah, it's the remarkable. There and the cells are there, and um, you can, they are demonstrably, uh, which the paper will, uh, once it's published, will also, these figures will all be there, would demonst demonstrably show that these are um, myeloma-specific, vaccine-specific immune responses. Um, and so, um, uh, when we... Um, uh, think about um, the fact that this happened with just four doses, as you say. Then in the newer study, the, what's built in there are booster shots on an annual basis for a couple of years following the initial uh, set of uh, vaccines. Well, let's talk about this phase two trial. Um, maybe you can explain, like, who, who can join and um, what are you looking for and how long, you know, how many patients you're looking for in the trial and just all the details about the trial. So, um, um, thank you. Um, so, the study is, um, it's a three-arm study. It's a randomized uh, placebo-controlled trial. And uh, patients who are uh, good candidates for the trial are uh, patients with who do not have a high-risk myeloma uh, and have a myeloma uh, that is um, uh, under good control. So, they can be in a complete remission or they can be in what used to be called a near-complete remission and now most of the time fits the definition of VGPR. Um, but they have to be uh, MRD positive. Now, um, they have to be MRD positive at a certain threshold. So data from, uh, you know, IFM, DFCI, 2009, the transplant studies, and many other studies mm -hmm. show that 
different levels of MRD, uh, the pres persistence of MRD give you different degrees of progression-free survival. Uh, and, you know, uh, these data from the IFM-DFCI trial are specific to the trial, but this principle is demonstrated in other settings as well, in other trials. So um, we wanted to see uh, and make sure that what we were doing was making a difference um, both, uh, you know, scientifically in terms of learning, but especially to our patients, uh, with MRD that wasn't too high and not too low. So just kind of like Goldilocks's porridge, right? Not too much, not too little. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, so you have to have MRD positivity at a level of 10 to the minus 4 by adaptive clonoseq uh, next-generation sequencing. And as uh, our audience may know, uh, adaptive clonoseq is an FDA-approved test uh, for uh, myeloma. Uh, for uh, uh, looking at levels of MRD. Uh, unfortunately, uh, patients do come uh, who are consent onto the trial sometimes, or we find that uh, their myeloma is in complete remission. We do the MRD testing, and they have, let's say, single-digit copies, one or two or three copies. Uh, and so, uh, yes, technically the MRD is there, but it doesn't meet the cutoff for the trial. And more importantly, having that little MRD is also not a bad place to be. Um, uh, patients who have 10 to the minus 4 or higher, that's 100 copies or more on your uh, clonoseq reports, uh, are, the, are, are the population that is really targeted. Uh, patients will uh, can have had a prior transplant, uh, so you don't have to have had a transplant. You're certainly allowed to have a transplant. If you've had a transplant, then you have to be at least a year out from the transplant. Uh, and if you haven't had a transplant, then, you know, that's Obviously, the requirement isn't there. Everybody needs to be to be on Revlimid and to be able to tolerate Revlimid. Um, and so, and the reasons for this are that I've described before, Revlimid is uh, what makes the immune environment favorable to uh, this sort of vaccine. Other requirements to be on the trial, which I uh, forget if I mentioned, was that can't have high-risk disease, so can't have a deletion 17p or a gain of 1q. Uh, these are all uh, defined in the uh, in the in the protocol. Um, and then you need to have a you know reasonable uh, organ function. I don't have an age limit. Um, you uh, you know if you've got a creatinine of 10, which is not all that common, but that puts you out of the range for the trial. But most people will be able to qualify. Um, the the entry criteria otherwise in terms of overall function and organ function are not all that uh, all that strict um, we are looking to enroll um, about not about but exactly 56 patients and uh, what happened was that uh, we um, uh, this uh, we developed the trial over a period of time finally got all the funding uh, that we needed and sorted out and uh, we enrolled two people on the trial and the moment we did that uh, and started their vaccines COVID hit and uh, mm -hmm. so we were on hiatus for seven months, uh, and then we resumed again in September. And uh, since September, uh, in the last five to six weeks, we've enrolled five patients and are rapidly accruing additional patients as well. Um, and um, I, we hope to hit, uh, actually, we hope that we'll be able to recruit a whole number of patients uh, within the next few months and uh, get to our target uh, uh, fairly quickly. The trial, as I mentioned itself, is a randomized placebo-controlled trial, and there are three arms. Um, uh, each, each, everyone uh, on each of these arms gets Revlimid. Um, one arm will get Revlimid as well as Prevnar, which is a pneumonia vaccine, and part of the reason for this is because the prior trial used pneumonia vaccine, and we want to make sure that uh, if this is uh, a combination effect, that we don't miss it, and, mm -hmm. and if this Due to uh, Prevnar as well, then we have an arm that excludes Prevnar. So there's GVAX, Prevnar, and Revlimid. 
In the next arm, you get GVAX and placebo and Revlimid. And in the final arm, you get a placebo and a placebo and Revlimid. And when I look at this whole thing, in my mind, what I see is that uh, the good thing is nobody misses out on their standard of care. Everybody gets Revlimid, which is the standard of care in most maintenance settings, whether after a transplant or when patients are done with their initial induction even. Um, at least uh, two-thirds of people will get the GVAX vaccine. And we also answer the question of, uh, you know, uh, how much input do you have from the pneumonia component? Um, does it also poke the bear enough to make a difference, or is it just a bystander in there? And this will sort of help us see in the long run that when we hope to take this vaccine, hopefully one day to a point where we can get it uh, registered and available to our patients if the data uh, hold up uh, as, as per the preliminary data, then we know exactly what sort of combination to use this in, uh, in best. Mm-hmm. So patients cannot have an, a measurable M protein, right? But they have to be MRD positive. And that's like a cell in 10,000 cells, right? Is that right? 10 to the minus 4? Instead uh, so of 100 that, copies. Of... Yeah. So mm -hmm. when you're looking at if uh, uh, that's uh, 1 in 10,000 exactly or um, – when you are looking at the report, the, the way the report uh, by Adaptive Chronoseek is given is it's given per million copies, and per million mm -hmm. copies, you, we want uh, 100 copies or more. Okay, that makes sense. But no measurable protein on your M-protein tests. And then um, on the dose of Revlimid, if you have to be on Revlimid, can they be on any dose, or is there a particular dose that you have to be on and tolerating? So most patients who received... The Revlimid on the original trial tended to be on 15 to 25 milligrams. And we spent a lot of time uh, meditating on what would be an optimal dose. And the thing is, there's not a hard and fast rule that says that, you know, the immunomodulatory effect of Revlimid kicks in at X, Y, or Z. So mm -hmm. um, uh, the way the trial is designed is that the protocol is not particularly stringent about what dose of Revlimid you come in on. Uh, mm -hmm. However, you are allowed dose reductions, but you're not allowed dose escalations. So if somebody comes in on 5 or 10 milligrams, they're not going to be going up to 10 or 15 milligrams because the only instance in which that would happen uh, potentially is if things are moving along. And if that's the case, then we don't necessarily want to uh, use the Revlimid to, um, to suppress the myeloma. Um, the, the goal is to try and get uh, the vaccine to su suppress the myeloma. So... Um, and although that also isn't strictly written into the protocol, by and large, the dose of Revlimid that you come on is the dose you're going to stay on, or if it's a high enough dose, then it's a dose that can be reduced if patients run into problems. Occasionally, as you know, people will have side effects from Revlimid, especially after a transplant. These include things like fatigue or rash or diarrhea and so on and so forth. Uh, so there's a little bit of room to maneuver in there. And then once you get the dosing, what what is the dosing of the actual vaccine in this phase two trial? There's a um, so the um, uh, this is a phase two study uh, in the sense that we have a standard flat dose for the vaccine, so that uh, there's no dose adjustment up or down. It's um, I mean frequency, I guess. Oh, so in the in the other trial, you said one, two, three, and six months, and in this this trial, it's at what time points? So it's still one, two. Uh, three and six months. There's a bone marrow biopsy to begin with, a bone marrow biopsy at six months, and then there's an annual bone marrow biopsy. And then there's an uh, annual uh, vaccine booster, 
going back to you know our comments uh, that you and I were just sharing a little while ago that uh, we got our responses right. with just four doses. So we thought if we give people annual boosters for the next couple of years, uh, then uh, we will uh, even potentiate that response even further. Um, so uh, there's a, going to be a total of um, uh, seven doses of vaccine for the life of the trial. Okay. And then it's only happening at Johns Hopkins, right? Uh, at this time, it is only happening at Johns Hopkins. I anticipate that our data um, will be both, um, you know, in terms of um, the immune repertoire, the changes to the immune repertoire that we expect to see. And with it, without a deeper MRD responses, I expect that our data will be uh, striking in the months and years to come. And so we hope to expand this to uh, multiple centers as we develop more data. Mm-hmm. And, and as we look at the landscape of myeloma, and so it's interesting that you're using transplant patients and non-transplant patients, so it doesn't really matter what type of prior therapy you've had or how many lines of therapy you've had, right? Or well, you said one. Well, in the other study, you said one to four lines. So, so in the other, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, please. Is there is there any um, expected prior lines of therapy for this phase two trial that you're looking for? So uh, once again, the trial, uh, the protocol does not make a distinction uh, with the number of prior lines of therapy that you have. The okay. protocol require and the study does require that if you've had a transplant you be at least a year out and part of this is because we we think that you know it's reasonably safe to say that once you're a year out from the transplant then the immune environment has kind of settled back to where it was before so there's nothing uh, really uh, uh, sort of unexpected that's going on and it's okay to give the vaccine in that setting uh, we uh, can take patients that have uh, a low-risk myeloma that is newly diagnosed and that have never had a relapse, or we can actually take patients who have a low-risk myeloma that is not newly diagnosed and have had a relapse in the past. Um, I don't have any specific requirements for X number of lines of treatment. Um, if patients come to me in a situation where if I find somebody, for instance, who has had 15 lines of treatment, I'm throwing a random number out there, yeah. but still yeah. have very clearly a low-risk myeloma, I have always, always had a low-risk myeloma, uh, which occasionally flares up and requires them to go on treatment, then I will sit down and consider whether this patient can actually uh, enroll on this trial if they meet all the other criteria. We all have myeloma patients. Um, you know, at the beginning of the talk, I talked about how MRD testing and getting deeper responses and as a, as a trial endpoint, uh, MRD is being explored more and more. But at the same time, every myeloma doctor will tell you that, look, I've got a patient that's around, that's been around since the, or several patients that have been around since the 90s. I can't get the myeloma to go away entirely, but uh, mm -hmm. if there's sort of an immune equilibrium that's been reached, and maybe that's true for patients that have these slow relapses over long periods of time. I have a patient that I have... Uh, uh, reference to some of my other patients who come here that I tell them about who was diagnosed with a myeloma in the late 90s, got some chemo in the early 2000s, said, look, this really isn't for me, and shows up once a year uh, and always has a little bit of M protein in the blood, um, has had not had any evidence of progression since that time, and we think has managed to reach a state of immune equilibrium and maybe been knocked back into an MGA sort of state. Um, so, you know, these things are possible even when you have had many lines of treatment. Um, and mm -hmm. we're more than willing to look at patients that meet the broad criteria to see if uh, this is appropriate for them to go forward. Right, and it doesn't, I mean, you're getting booster shots at the facility, but it's not really that um, 
that intrusive in terms of like coming to the clinic or anything like that. So it seems like an easy study to join. Well, absolutely. So um, when you when you think about it, if um, you know what's sort of missed in the myeloma world in general is, you know, our median age of diagnosis is 69. Only 15% of our patients are under 45. Fully a third of myeloma patients are over the age of 75. And I I get transplant. I'm a big fan of transplant. I, I trained at the University of Arkansas, and I was at the Myeloma Institute there for three and a half years with Dr. Balogi. And so, you know, I'm a big believer in transplant. But there are certain settings where especially for some sort of patients where you might want to think outside the box and say, hey, look, what else can I do to help bring this myeloma under better control for a longer period of time that uh, doesn't put my patient through, um, you know, a, a bunch of hoops that is sort of low maintenance, not particularly toxic. And I think what we've seen with the study so far is that the, the vaccine is very well tolerated, uh, that there are excellent data that suggest that it works, uh, in the study with the uh, the previous study that I described that we that is in the process of being published, um, and that um, coming in once a year to get a booster shot after you've had initial series of shots is uh, you know uh, fairly low burden. It's certainly easier than let's say coming in weekly for any sort of uh, infusion or every other week or even once a month for any sort of infusion. Well, completely. And if it's helping you get um, persistent T cell responses for many years, I mean, you're almost up to a decade, and in your first study, then that's something that's really awesome <laughs> for patients. I wanted to ha ask a question about the checkpoint inhibitors because you mentioned them a couple times in the show. How do you see that working together with, I, I think everybody in the myeloma world got kind of nervous about checkpoint inhibitors when they were combined with Revlimid, um, in some of the early studies, and those studies were shut down. And and then how do you, um, because you're using Revlimid in this study to kind of boost the GVAX vaccine or to kind of expand the use, uh, the immune function of it, then how do you um, how do you use the checkpoint inhibitors or the PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors for with the vaccine? How does that work together? So that's it's really very interesting. So the Pancreatic cancer GVAX, um, brilliant idea, great uh, great construct, um, didn't turn out to be what it was expected to be. And to the pancreatic cancer group over here, I um, only half-jokingly, actually semi-seriously, said to them, why don't you guys consider giving this a revlimid, right? And mm. everyone looked at me like I was bonkers, but um, I wasn't trying to... What I was trying to suggest was that perhaps what revlimid does is it helps potentiate the immune system to make the vaccine go down a bit better. So they didn't do Revlimid, but they have a trial uh, in the works which combines pancreatic GVAX with checkpoint inhibitors. And the principle is roughly the same, right, which is that if what you're doing is taking your brakes off the uh, immune system entirely, then really uh, its ability to um, wake up, release cytokines, recruit other immune cells and antigen-presenting cells which might recognize the cancer and cancer antigens becomes a lot more robust. Now, with myeloma, unfortunately, what we saw was that checkpoint inhibitors plus imids uh, did lead to some really excellent responses, but, you know, uh, the poor outcomes outweighed the better outcomes, and so that was all put aside. So for us in the myeloma community, going forward, still since we're still somewhat shell-shocked by that experience, we think about, look, 
how is it that, that why is it that, that happened and how can we make it better maybe the answer to that question is you need to have a better um a, a different or rather not necessarily better but a different uh, um combination partner with the checkpoint inhibitor other than an image like revlimid or pomalidomide and there are drugs that have been mm-hmm. out there proposed then i think uh, potentially going forward uh, for um, uh, this trial uh, as well uh, but that's at a later point in time that maybe a straight checkpoint inhibitor combination with the the vaccine uh, might be something that we could explore based on the uh, immune profile that we see with the larger sample that we will have in this in this current study the dendritic cell vaccine uh, that i mentioned earlier that is being studied by the harvard group uh, they have a process already uh, going with uh, uh checkpoint inhibitors there is a vaccine trial in the works as well uh, that uses uh, um uh, sort of a histone deacylase inhibitors or uh, hypomethylating agents like uh, uh the, it's one of the stats i blocking on the name but um, so the the thought process there is that you use a slightly different modulating agent to see if what you if you can make um the immune system still sensitive to the vaccine without necessarily giving you the same side effects um we have to be a little bit careful especially with checkpoint inhibitors i don't think that as single as single agents they didn't really show as much effect in myeloma as uh patient mm-hmm. agents they cause problems so the answer to that question is probably really want to be careful about your combination partner and i think that's where the vaccine sort of might be an attractive thing because it um, it its intrinsic activity is different from giving a drug like uh, revlimid at the same time as a checkpoint inhibitor and that's where this might even be more attractive going forward other settings for the for this kind of vaccine might actually be uh, things that we've already discussed which is do i want to give this in high risk mgas do i want to give this in in a uh, uh, high risk smoldering or even moderate uh, risk smoldering myeloma these are all things that we uh, are plan to explore in the future um, as this trial progresses and um, uh, we get more data Mhm. Uh that's amazing. And where I I guess my last question will be where do you want to go from from here before we open it up to questions? Uh what do you see as the future? You kind of touched on it a little bit earlier in the show. But um how do you see this being expanded in use? Yeah, uh you are we talking about the the vaccines in general or are we talking about myeloma therapy as a whole? No, the Gvax vaccine and 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 well we we've talked about PD1 and you're talking saying that this in smoldering myeloma or MGAS. Um do you see any other combinations that it might be considered in? Yeah, um uh, so I think that um um it may be um checkpoint inhibitors we talked about hdac inhibitors not with this particular vaccine uh, at this time but with other vaccines that are being explored that is certainly an opportunity um i would like to eventually see once the data bear out what we uh, have borne out what we've already seen i would potentially like to see an expanded use for this i think for this to be used potentially as a standard following transplant or even for patients that are not transplant eligible would be a very good place for this to be um mm. easily done you come in you get a shot keeps a lid on things you don't have to worry about taking heavy duty chemotherapy and you get yourself a much longer progression free survival i also think that with novel mechanisms of reducing tumor burden um that a combination as i mentioned say perhaps with anti bcma car t cells as well as mm-hmm. uh, other constructs that may attack 
um, uh, the uh, myeloma-specific antigens, whether that's Darzalax or other immunotherapies. Combining these with that may very well be reasonable. There are a whole host of immunotherapies that now activate T cells, and that's where I think uh, a vaccine might find itself useful when you're saying that I'm going to be using the combination to reduce tumor burden beyond just actually using it to keep a lid on things. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a, um, a truly amazing approach and one that would be easy to tolerate for patients and not ongoing and forever, and but still maintaining that response. So I'm super excited about what you're working on and um, hope that this trial runs quickly so we can learn more. And sometimes it's really difficult now because, you know, the first trial, you're, you've waited, you know, now seven, eight years <laughs> to get results from some of these trials. So it's a nice problem to have, but kind of challenging. So you can figure out, like, in what combination are these best for when you're getting these really long responses. That's kind of tough for you. No, absolutely. But that's where some of the rationale for the trial design is uh, sort of comes into play. So, um, you know, we thought about, uh, say, say, taking patients who had single-digit MRDs, uh, but um, we figured that if the, the responses there are going to go an extra long period of time. And we wanted to find, uh, again, this Goldilocks population where we thought we could make the biggest difference to our patients and learn the most mm -hmm. about how the might work, and that seemed to be around 10 to the minus 4 in terms of MRD. And, and so, uh, you know, for um, we do um, run into the potential issue that a patient may come into our clinic and screen for the trial, but we find, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, but fortunately, I think, uh, you know, maybe MRD negative, and you're like, you know what, that's a fabulous place to be. Go home, uh, you know, catch yourself Netflix uh, dinner and a Netflix movie, and, you'll, you know, that'll mm -hmm. be great. Uh, so... Mm -hmm. I think um, these are these are all uh, uh, possibilities that we want to explore. I've occasionally used the expression that where I want myeloma therapy, whether it's uh, drugs or CAR T cells, and this vaccine therapy to be, you know, we uh, when prior to coming to Johns Hopkins, when I was at the National Cancer Institute at the NCI, I along with my mentor, we did the first in humans CAR T cell trial for myeloma, and whether it's CAR T cells or vaccines, what I'd like to see one day is for my for a myeloma patient to walk into their doctor's office and say, hey, doc, you know what, I've got a headache and some myeloma, and the doctor's like, here's two aspirin and some T-cells, or here's two aspirin and a vaccine shot. Take two of both. Mm -hmm. Right? So it sounds science fiction-y, but I think, uh, I think we'll get there one day. Oh, I think it's totally amazing and it's so exciting what you're doing. So thank you so much for sharing what you're doing today. I want to open it up to caller questions. So if you have a question for Dr. Ellie, you can call... 347-637-2631 and press 1 on your keypad. And we'll start with caller ending in 5572. So go ahead with your question. Hi, Dr. Ali. Um, that was um, fun to listen to. Very densely packed with information. And well, thank you so much. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to reading the transcript and unpacking that. So there's a couple of things. By the way, I, I agree with you. I do believe that, you know, the headache was a, was a mystery in, until there was aspirin. And then it was, oh, so it, we'll look back on this someday and say, oh, it was, you know, it's always simple looking backwards, um, very complex looking forward. But one of the things you said in your 
in your densely packed, um, you know, uh, you know, information that you, you gave us was something just popped out at me. You talked about how the, the GVAX vaccine could work in combination with a CAR T cell and they, because they're both generating, um, they're triggering an immune response and they might play off each other. Could you expand on that? Yeah, so, you know, there's always been this uh, question as to, th- thank you very much for the question and for the gracious comments. I will, uh, uh, and I, I hear you on the dense packing. I will endeavor to uh, unpack mm-hmm. it for uh, for uh, these sort of uh, talks. No. Future, definitely. But, um, no, no, don't, don't, don't even, I mean, that was fun. <laughs> It's, uh, thank you. It's, mind, it's mind-bending because every, every couple of minutes, like, you, you jumped into a new, important, dense concept, and it's like you just brought years of thought and research, and then you, just, then you went on to the next one and on to the next one. So, so they're all triggering exciting thoughts, but this is one that just really stood out. Absolutely. So uh, no, thank you. Um, so, you know, there's always been this concept of um, – um, um, when you you guys may have all heard whether it's with COVID or with uh, CAR T cells that people can get cytokine release, and we know that one one immune cell wakes up and releases cytokines, it it uh, it um, sort of uh, wakes up other immune cells. And there's this concept in T cell therapies in general, whether you're using um, uh, bispecific antibodies or bispecific T cell engagers or uh, or CAR T cells that. Um, once the system is activated, then you get epitope spreading. And although you started out targeting just uh, BCMA, for instance, uh, now that you've woken up your T cells, um, they begin to recognize a whole host of other targets. And um, uh, and hopefully, with the as the cancer cells start dying, then more of these targets become apparent, and then the T cells recognize even more targets. So when... Um, you give this uh, when you give these constructs potentially at the same time what i think is perhaps could happen is that you could say look i'm going to give my bcma therapy that will take care of the bulk of your tumor it will perhaps cause a little bit of fevers and cytokine release and there will be bits and pieces of dead t cells flying around and those dead t cells will re- release a bunch of antigens that will synergize with your vaccine construct which as uh, we said has an immune adjuvant in there and together, they will sort of play off each other and, recruit, and and sort of recruit even more cells and give us a bunch of T cells that now are exposed to a bunch of different antigens that are all cancer antigens and that may have long-lived memory and may stick around like we saw with the vaccine trial uh, earlier on. These are concepts that are described both within the CAR T cell world and also within the vaccine world, right? That uh, with our own trial and with our first trial at uh, at the NCI and with other CAR T cell trials in uh, lymphomas and leukemias, looking at CD19, that you know there is a certain thing to be said for persistence in certain settings. Uh, some of those data are a bit controversial, but uh, we do find that uh, there are aspects of uh, a cancer-specific immune response beyond just the target that you were initially targeting that you may get to persist for long periods of time. Another way to think about this, actually, is a trial that uh, our group here, uh, that, again, Dr. Borello has pioneered, using what are called marrow-infiltrating lymphocytes, right? He he takes lymphocytes from inside the bone marrow with the assumption that, you know what, these are the guys that were at least around the cancer and were trying to kill the cancer, which is myeloma. And 
we take these out, we culture them, and then we give them back after transplant. Uh, and this study has been completed, and you know it's undergoing analysis uh, with the with the assumption that look, we have these T cells that were exposed to the to the cancer and recognize a wide repertoire of antigens from the cancer, and if we give them back after a transplant with certain other molecules like uh, phosphodiesterase inhibitors and take the breaks off the immune system, then the whole thing will, each thing will feed off the next. So um, there are many, it turns out there's more than one ways to try and skin this cat, and we want to try and find the ways to get the immune system to work using different methods that may benefit our patients. I hope that was uh, useful. Fabulous oh, yeah. answer. Thank you. Great. Thank you so Great. much. Great. Thank you so much. Okay. We have other callers. So I know we're over time, but I'm wondering if you could stay sure. just a few more minutes. Okay. We have a caller, 7911961. If you could keep your questions short, because we have several questions. Go ahead with your question. Yes. This is Susan Van Skyke, St. Louis. I used to be New York State Health Department, executive branch years ago in 1987 we figured out t-cells for cancer we did it in the um, library of the health department and we put all the studies together and back engineered them thank you very much for your efforts finally coming out the question i had too because we're also aware of public health epidemics was lyme disease and over the years i had several people talk to me back and forth on studies of possibility of lyme disease becoming mgus going into multiple myeloma which you might want to investigate further on to see if you, they will be part of your preemptive studies, okay? Just to let you know. I think you're doing a great idea, and the lymph system idea is excellent also, okay? Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so, Thank you. Um, that was mostly a comment, I did, not a specific question, yeah, yeah. correct? Okay, um, caller 9870622. Go ahead with your question. Hi, Dr. Ali. This is Bonnie Falbo. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Bonnie? I'm good. Thanks for this great talk. And um, I'm so happy more people are learning about your trial. Um, and my husband's in this trial. So um, you stimulated me to ask some questions. At what, when you do your repeat bone marrow biopsies, at what time and point would you expect to see a response? And how much, is there a certain amount of copy number change that qualifies? As a response, uh, I'm I'm sorry, I missed it. Is there a certain amount of uh, what change? Copy number change? Did you a say? A change in the co- yes, a change in the number of copy numbers that is like statistically significant to qualify for you know um, seeing a response from the vaccine. All right. So so that's a great question. So the first thing is that the MRD testing on the prior trial were done after the fact, right? Because uh, back when the trial started and patients started enrolling, the kind of MRD testing that is being done now simply wasn't around. So these were done after the fact on samples that were available. That's number one. So how and when the MRD may have turned or not turned for that matter is not easy for me to identify. But what I can tell you is that the median time to people going into a complete, you know, and everybody on the trial, on the original trial, was in a near complete remission, right? At least IFE positive. The median time uh, for going into a uh, complete remission was about 11 and a half months. So um, I, and, and then what we also know about uh, these immune responses are that, you know, these responses take uh, time to build, right? There's uh, an initial priming event and then there are subsequent exposures and each of these sort of build on each other over time. Um, I, uh, 
really hope to begin seeing at the six-month bone marrow biopsy uh, the beginnings of changes in the T-cell repertoire in patients. But what's interesting about your question is that when you say, um, when do I necessarily expect to see uh, changes in the MRD? I can't answer that question just yet. And more importantly, I the part of the sort of knockoff effect of this trial is I don't know yet how important it might be for me to see um, uh, MRD actually change because I know there were people on the original trial who had M protein flying around who are still in remission well beyond when they should have relapsed. And so the thing for us to also explore is uh, does it matter whether we push people into deeper MRD or not if the immune equilibrium that we're establishing keeps a lid on it. So there are um, you know, well-published curves looking at what do you expect to see when somebody is MRD positive at 10 to the minus 4. These are taken from different studies, so it's not as easy to compare them all of the time because, you know, the initial induction was different or somebody got a transplant and so on and so forth. But the principle is still there. Less MRD and PFS is longer. More MRD and PFS is shorter. So, but these are published data. And so we would be looking at, hey, look, if, if our patient had X amount of MRD, which everyone will because we want them to have more than 100 copies, how long before I saw any change in one direction or the other? And that will sort of help inform, inform uh, our understanding of the vaccine and where we, uh, where we go next. Um, I, I hope that addresses the question. I guess what I'm saying is that do I want to see, does it matter that I see deeper MRD? at least right now, with this vaccine, and I don't know the answer to that question. That's something I'm trying to explore. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Can I just tag on to that one corresponding thing? Since we we know sample bias exists, and we know that that would definitely affect the MRD readout, does that also affect what you're looking for in seeing changes in the T-cell repertoire, or would you see that no matter where you sampled from? So that's a, so that's a good question. So um, so if I I um, understand correctly, uh, you're saying that um, um, when I'm looking at because there's sample bias in the way bone marrow biopsies are done, right? That uh, you know you could hit one spot and get nothing, get hit the next spot and get a bunch of cells. Is is that right. what the question is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, so that's an interesting question. By and large, when you get a good um, uh, when you get a good marrow sample uh, with a bunch of cells in there, with a bunch of spicules in there, then uh, is it possible that you know going into an empty space gives you an empty result in the lab? Sure. Um, uh, you know, and I don't know if, as, as, as you're well aware, you guys had a second biopsy, right? Because uh, the first right. biopsy. Was, was, was was suboptimal. So, uh, but the first biopsy was suboptimal to the point that uh, you know when we when we looked at it, uh, the aspirin was really aspiculate, and uh, you know the pathologist looked at it and said, yeah, this is full of blood. That's a waste of everyone's time, right? That's not something that makes any sense. But the second biopsy, you know what? Uh, it uh, we took the research samples, we got an excellent core, we got the. Uh, uh, the um, uh, MRD testing that we were that we were looking for, and we got the results that we expected to see. So I, it's possible that it makes a difference. It's kind of difficult to predict because bone marrows are patchy. So long as you get a good sample, I think we're okay. 
I guess okay, what I'm great. asking is, is the T-cell repertoire also, uh, does that have sample bias? Uh, or is the response in T-cells, would that be reflective homogeneously no matter where you sampled from? So I would say I would say that the uh, you know to borrow from the solid organ setting in the solid organ setting at the NIH what they started doing was taking tumor infiltrating lymphocytes stick a needle into a tumor and take out T cells from there right not just go straight to the blood for it so because that's what the tumor microenvironment is the tumor microenvironment for the myeloma is the bone marrow so as long as your sample is good, I would expect that perhaps I may expect more T cells in the vicinity of a cluster of myeloma cells, but I think you will find that uh, there are diffuse changes in the bone marrow as well. And if the sample is good, that should that should show up. Okay, okay great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bonnie. Um, thanks, Dr. Ali. And uh, we have two more questions. So hopefully that we can be quick. Two seven five four nine seven eight. Go ahead with your yes. question. Yes, thank you, Doctor, very much. And uh, two points to clarify, please. Uh, one is, do we actually, how long do we have to have been on Revlimid before we start, or can we just start Revlimid once the trial starts? And secondly, what uh, do you require any kind of a maintenance from a regular uh, myeloma drug after the treatment? And did, or do we have to take Revlimid after the treatment? Oh, yeah, that, good question. Yeah, these are excellent. Actually, these are excellent bread and butter questions of the trial, and maybe I should have mm -hmm. addressed them. So, number one, everyone who's going to get on the trial has to have had uh, a standard amount of consensus chemotherapy, right? So, standard induction. Uh, for six cycles, um, followed by uh, transplant, or if no transplant, then at least standard induction with six cycles. That standard induction regimen should have contained Revlimid. And ideally, uh, people coming on the trial will have been on Revlimid and have had the response that they've had uh, for at least the past three months. Once people are enrolled on the trial and start getting vaccine, then they are expected to continue the Revlimid through the life of the trial. Uh, typically, as you know, Revlimid is given um, uh, with variations for 21 days on and a week off. And what we try and do is when people are getting their vaccine injections, we try and make that coincide with the middle of the cycle so that they've been on Revlimid for at least some time and not give the vaccine when they're actually in their off week. Uh, so bottom line with this is have to have had at least uh, a six cycle of initial chemotherapy. It should ideally contain a Revlimid-containing regimen. You should have had the response that you're in now for at least the last three months uh, and have been on Revlimid uh, for at least the three prior months. Or, uh, uh, you know, most people who are after a transplant now will already have been on Revlimid for at least a period of time. And since we're not taking anyone who is on, um, who is um, not uh, a year out from transplant, everybody sort of comes to us on Revlimid in one way or another. And then you have to be willing and able to continue Revlimid once you start on the study. Does that answer your question? So even after the 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 the, the trial, the medicines that you give afterwards, you, you expect to be on Revlimid. And there are many of us who have taken Revlimid. Uh, and then go off Revlimid. I've been off Revlimid now for like five years. Yeah. So, so what about? 
So that's a great question. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, did you have a... Uh, yes, in, in, that, in that example, a patient who took Revlimid in the beginning, then went off it for four or five years, and now wants to go in this trial. Yeah, you would have to have been on... Um, so the protocol doesn't specifically provide for this instance, but you will have to have been on Revlimid for the last three months, and um, you will have to continue on Revlimid while you're on the trial um, because the the likelihood of getting the vaccine to work any better or getting the likelihood, we think that the, that the, the vaccine is disadvantaged when it's not given with Revlimid. And if we want to maintain a persistent uh, immunosurveillance state with the vaccine, then the combination is to do it with Revlimid. So if you have been off for five years, first of all, congratulations. It sounds like you're not taking any other therapy, right? Is that accurate? Kyprolis. So you're on Kyprolis as a single yeah. agent. So yes. If you were on Kyprolis, let's say if you're on Kyprolis right now and you're looking to get on the study, then to qualify for the study, you will have to be on Revlimid for three months and be off all other therapy, including steroids or Kyprolis. Okay. So you'd switch, yeah. Yes, thank you. Okay, great, thank thanks. Great question, very practical question. Okay, last question, 309-8893. Go ahead with your question. Yes, um, I, I'm just a little, because I'm getting so many different um, uh, variations about the 1Q amp from some of the leading myeloma specialists. Is that not being high risk? Some pe- It's like a 50-50 high risk. I mean, can you comment on that? Because I'd like to be part of the study, but unfortunately have that chromosomal uh, anomaly. No, thank, thank you very much for the question. So um, um, there is, you know, there is some controversy controversy as to the the one Q amplification, and um, there are still some older series that show that that suggest that it is intermediate risk, and right. that it is uh, you know uh, a median uh, survival of seven years or more even. Uh, these these are interesting to me, and it uh, there are a lot of nuances to this that, amongst other things, have to do with. Um, you know, how much amplification is there? Are there four or more copies? Is it, uh, right. are, are we talking about a gain? Are we talking about uh, further amplification? If you ask people like myself who trained in Arkansas at the Myeloma Institute, then we tend to take a 1Q uh, very seriously. And the way I explain it to my patients is that, um, and what we learned from um, from uh, our experiences in Arkansas where Dr. Barlogi and our other colleagues, uh, 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 Josh Epstein, Dr. Zasmani, many others, designed a um, uh, gene expression profile, uh, GEP70 and a GEP80. And what this um, gene expression profile did was that uh, it gave you a score as to whether you were low risk or high risk based on what genes were being expressed by the samples of your myeloma. A big chunk of those genes were all on chromosome 1. So changes to chromosome 1, whether it's deletion of 1P or gain of 1Q or imbalances of chromosome 1, we think have a lot of impact on myeloma biology. In my mind, and often the way that I explain it to my patients, is that there are a bunch of genes there that are kind of go-signal genes for myeloma cells. And having amplifications of them um, sort of uh, make your myeloma be in a situation where there's a foot on the gas. 
But okay. the nuances to this kind of come down to well, all right, how many myeloma cells um, uh, have the, uh, have this sort of situation? I uh, looked at a patient who um, has had myeloma since uh, 2011, and uh, you know is on Revlimid maintenance was on an extended Revlimid maintenance study, and um, uh, when you look at the earlier bone marrow biopsies, two percent of the cells had a gain of one Q. Well, what does that really mm-hmm. mean? It's percent of cells it's below the threshold so all of these nuances come into it you know how many cells are actually involved uh, are these do they meet any sort of threshold uh, what do we mean are we talking about uh, how many copies are we talking about is it just a gain of 1q or a proper 1q amplification and then over and above all of that is how has it how has the disease behaved um, you know if somebody comes to me and says doc you know I've had myeloma for five years uh, but I I it was difficult to get me into remission, and I came out of remission quickly, and then I had to give salvage therapy, and then I went to a transplant, and I relapsed within six months. All of these say something about how the myeloma is behaving in the mm-hmm. myeloma pathology, even if I don't necessarily find it on my standard tests. So a small percentage would be, what, less than 5% or 4% or do? I mean, it's a very small percentage of the of the total. Uh, you, say, you just said 2%, so I don't know. 2%, that was well below any threshold. These thresholds are typically defined by the labs that are performing these tests. Um, okay. Yeah, so uh, I typically, and for the purposes of the study, always take 1Q plus seriously, especially when it hits a predefined threshold that is generally set by the labs performing these tests. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for your question. I'm not sure if we've been disconnected. Oh, sorry. I was on mute and I was talking. (laughs) Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for everything that you've provided for us today. We went way over time, and you've been so gracious with your time and so informative for us as patients. Um, What you're doing is just fantastic work. Uh, We all as patients want to know how to just really extend the treatment that we're getting and um, this, so this is really exciting for us as patients. So thank you so much for dedicating your work to myeloma and for doing this important work. Look, thank you very, very much. Uh, you know, my hat's off to all our myeloma patients out there, yourself, Jenny, all my patients, everyone else's patients, um, for uh, you know, doing what you do uh, in facing myeloma every day. Um, thank you for uh, contributing to our knowledge of uh, myeloma and myeloma trials in particular, new drugs of myeloma. And um, also, you know, thanks also to my colleagues, uh, Dr. Borello, many others who have done really just uh, excellent work in myeloma that we hope to continue building on and work towards uh, the big C, which is uh, a true cure for myeloma. It's a good four-letter word to use, like love and hope. Uh, yeah, so, I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I totally love it. Well, thank you so much for helping contribute to that cure. And we're excited to see what you learn from this trial. So thank you so much, and I would encourage patients always. Um, this, To me, this expands the, the, um, the reasons that you need a myeloma specialist in your corner, first of all. And um, secondly, the reasons you should consider clinical trials at all times, You know, even when you're doing fairly well, because those are the patients that you're looking at in this study. So I, I'm a huge advocate for that and appreciate everything you're doing to run this trial. 
Right. Uh, no, thank you. I agree. We are we are simpatico. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, well, so thank you for all our listeners uh, for listening to My Loma Crowd Radio. And we encourage you to tune in uh, next week to learn more about the latest in Myeloma research and what it means for you. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.